The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, uh, welcome back. And um, let us continue where we left off this morning. Uh, so, we're just looking at the... Uh, the middle way uh, and the uh, Buddhist idea of kind of putting aside any concern for the body, whether it is uh, tormenting the body or indulging the body, uh, and finding that path which is the development of the mind, which is kind of between these extremes. But in a sense, it's not really between. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's almost like a different path altogether. Uh, and the idea of middle way is just a way of uh, putting aside the body, focusing on the mental world instead. Uh, so let's just have a look at this in a little bit more detail before we have a look at the noble, the first noble truth, uh, uh, just coming up very, very soon. Uh. So this is um, again in Bhante Sudhato's translation here. He says, mendicants, uh, these two extremes should not be cultivated by one who has gone forth. Uh, what two indulgence in sensual pleasures? Uh, which is low, crude, ordinary, ignoble, and pointless, uh, and indulgence in self-mortification, which is painful, ignoble, and pointless. Uh, avoiding these two extremes, the realized one woke up by understanding the middle way, uh, which gives rise to or gives vision and knowledge uh, and leads to peace, direct knowledge, awakening, and extinguishment. So, two extremes yeah the the Pali word is anta anta literally means end so uh, I, I think these days I prefer to translate this as the two opposites rather than two extremes because uh, it, they're not really extremes in a kind of an ordinary sense yeah it's not as if uh, indulging in sensual pleasures is an extreme it's just uh, an or two opposites in a way yeah. so two um, things that are polar opposites and then the middle way goes between them yeah. So um, I think that, to me, that is a preferable translation. Uh, at least an alternative one gives a broader view of what is going on. Uh, and uh, so one of them then is the indulgence in sensual pleasures. Uh, and this is anything in the sensual world. Yeah, the five, anything that comes through the five sense doors, uh, basically. Whenever you indulge in that, then you are um, indulging in sensual pleasures. Uh, and it is low, yeah, this is hina, as in hina yana. It is, in other words, it's kind of inferior, if you like. And the reason why it is considered inferior or low is not because it is bad. It's th that's the kind of the wrong understanding of that. Uh, it is just a matter of uh, gradation. Uh, so you have uh, superior happinesses, superior things that are subjectively experienced as superior because they are more happy, more content, they have more... Uh, they are more pure and all of these uh, factors, and that is why they are superior. This is why sensual players are inferior, because it is an inferior kind of happiness, essentially. Uh, that is really what it comes down to. Uh, so it's not evil or anything like that. Uh, it's just uh, not as good uh, as the alternative. Uh. And you have crude and ordinary. Uh, these are uh, uh, gamma, uh, yeah, uh, relating to the village, relating to ordinary people. Uh, ordinary portujanika uh, relating to ordinary people uh, jana puttu the many the many people uh, ignoble anarya 
the opposite of the noble ones, the Aryans, uh, and pointless Anatta Sanghita is uh, Atta is like the purpose of the path, yeah, it's where we are going. It is the movement towards uh, Nibbana and all good qualities, uh, and this is does not lead in that direction. So it does, because it doesn't lead in that direction, it is then pointless. It doesn't have any real goal. It doesn't go anywhere. Uh, and that is the problem with uh, sensual pleasures. It just kind of goes round and round and round. It uh, doesn't actually take you anywhere. Uh, and it is seductive at the same time because there is a degree, of course, there is a degree of happiness there. Uh. So uh, this is uh, the sensual pleasures to be avoided. What does it mean in practice? Uh, does it mean that um, from now on you should just eat rice and drink water? Or, or you know, is that what it means? Uh, and of course, no, it doesn't really mean that. Uh, how do you know if you are indulging in sensual pleasures uh, contra just you know enjoying them without really indulging? What is the difference? Uh, and the difference is how it affects your mind. Yeah, it how it how it to the extent to which you are attached to them. Uh, so if you are on a retreat, yeah, some of you are keeping the eight precepts, and it's very I'm very impressed that people are keeping eight precepts even though you are going back home in the evening. Yeah, yeah it's quite can be quite difficult to go back home and keep the eight precepts. Uh, yeah, if you are hungry and the fridge is there and it's so easy to get access to something, it's actually quite hard. It, it takes a very quite a strong commitment to be able to do that. Uh, so it uh, can be quite difficult. So it's very it's really quite impressive that you do that. As a monastic, it is much easier because as a monk, you are so used to not eat, eating in the evening, you don't even think about it. Uh, it kind of doesn't even occur to you that there is such a thing as food after midday. Uh, it kind of the food sort of vanishes from your horizon at uh, a certain time and. Simsalabim, it's gone. But uh, for most people, if you are used to it, actually it can be quite hard. Uh, but it's interesting that Buddha praises the idea of keeping the eight precepts at least on the Uposatha days, yeah, or on retreats, if you like. Yeah. And he does that because it is a training of the mind in uh, renouncing things and leaning the mind in the right direction. Uh. So you know that indulgence is a problem if you think about these things. Uh, yeah. So if you sit down uh, and in the evening you try to meditate and all you can think of is, uh, you know, <laughs> the meal the next day or whatever, then, of course, then it is problematic. Uh. So you can tell straight away from your mind where your mind is at, whether you are attached to these things or not, simply by seeing what the mind does. Uh. And uh, so you have some idea. But if your mind kind of moves towards peace and stillness, uh, at least sometimes, uh, then that is a very good sign that you're heading in a different direction already. Uh. So don't take these things too far. Uh. Know that middle way, because again, you are just creating suffering and problems for yourself if you take these things too far. Uh. Try to find that uh, balance there. Of, I'm not suggesting there should never be any suffering or problems of course there will always be a little bit but don't make it too much uh, it's impossible to do things you know without any kind of uh, suffering or any kind of you know dukkha whatsoever that just doesn't work that way uh, but at least we can minimize things a little bit uh. so that is the um, the sensual pleasures on the other side you have the self mortification atta kilamatanu yoga uh, which is uh, painful dukkha ignoble, anarya, and again, pointless. Uh, so this is bad because it's painful. Uh. It's interesting, isn't it? Painfulness is bad, according to this. Uh, why? Well, because I, we're all kind of looking for happiness. Uh. And uh, in the sutta, sometimes you see the Buddha talking about the path in different ways. It's possible to practice the Buddhist path uh, with different, different kind of emphasis on 
various meditation objects and uh, the Buddha talks about four kinds of path the happy path and the painful path uh, and the fast path and the slow path so which one do you think is the best one here uh, happy and fast yeah that's the best path yeah <laughs> fast obviously it's good it kind of makes sense uh, but happy is preferable so if you can go the happy path uh, and avoid dukkha that is preferable. Why? Because just because it feels better. Huh? That's kind of what life is all about. Is feelings are you know one of the main driving forces in our life. And of course, we prefer the happy feelings. Huh? So take the fast and happy path. Huh? You want to come along on the fast and happy path? <laughs> if you listen to Ajahn Brahm, he's all about fast and happy path. Huh? That's kind of his uh, his technique. Yeah. So uh, and also the Buddha's technique. Yeah? And he kind of lists, make make puts those paths in a sequence. Uh, so take the fast and happy one. So anyway, I think it's pretty obvious. So uh, and that then is that middle way when you avoid those two opposites. And that middle way, yeah, what does it do? Well, it is not pointless. These other things are pointless. They don't lead to any goal. But this middle way does lead to a goal. What is that goal? Vision, knowledge, peace, direct knowledge, awakening and extinguishment. Yeah, vision and knowledge, jnana dasana, uh, see, in other words, seeing and knowing. Uh, is it good to see and know? Yes, of course it is good to see and know, because when you see and know, then uh, when you understand things properly, uh, then you can make good decisions in life. If you don't really know and see what's going on, how on earth can you make good decisions? It's impossible. Uh, you have to have insight, you have to see things clearly to be able to make good decisions. Uh, so no, knowledge and, and vision, uh, seeing and uh, whatever it is, it's always a positive thing on the Buddhist path. Uh. Then we have peace, yeah, upasama. Uh, obviously, I guess all of you are into peace. Yeah, peace is nice when the mind becomes really peaceful. Uh, you know how powerful and how beautiful that is if we have a peaceful mind. Uh. We have a monk in our monastery called upasama. Uh. You can go and check him out, see if he lives up to his name. Uh. <laughs> so he <laughs> but um, so uh, and, and one of and the interesting thing about and one of the things to think remember when it comes to the word of the buddha is that the buddha also is understated here so when the buddha says it leads to peace it doesn't just mean a little bit of peace uh, yeah it means maxing out on peace uh, the um uh, uh, uh the kind of whole path is basically defined in terms of peace. So Upasama here really refers to the highest kind of peace that is attainable on the path. Yeah, it's like arahantship, that sort of thing here. When the Buddha says you are happy, he doesn't just mean you're a little bit happy, a little bit joyful, and you kind of you know have a spring in your step, but well, it doesn't really mean that at all. The Buddha says happy means like the highest happiness you can possibly gain in samsaric existence. And this is so remember that the Buddha is always understated yeah these uh, qualities are often very high when he talks about them in this way here yeah. so, yeah it is uh, these things are useful because they help you to interpret the suttas in the right way this idea of interpretation is very important because it can be difficult to interpret these things yeah. so that's for this and uh, that's why i'm kind of giving you little hints on the way here yeah. direct knowledge uh, abhinya these are all the knowledges uh, <coughs> that come with the path uh, yeah, the kind of whole spectrum of knowledges uh, and insights into reality, uh, whatever that might be. Uh, awakening, uh, bang, awakened. Okay, now I understand reality. Uh, before I have kind of, as if you are been asleep in a sense, so you haven't you have been deluded at the very least. Uh, 
that this is awake. And the Pali word is bodhi, and it quite literally derived from the from the verb, which means to awaken or to wake up. Uh, so it is a very suitable translation. Usually enlightenment is a translation for which there's also, it's not a bad translation because light is also one of the metaphors that is used regularly to uh, point to the idea of uh, awakening. Yeah, So enlightenment obviously so is related to light, but awakening is a much more immediate and direct translation of this word. Uh. And then extinguishment, uh, which is uh, Nibbana, yeah, extinguishment. And again, it is really nice to translate a word like Nibbana because it has a very distinct meaning. And to an audience in India at the time of the Buddha, Nibbana would actually mean something. It wouldn't just be a word. For most people who have kind of, you know, who, who are outside, who haven't really um, grown up in that kind of context or with that kind of vocabulary, it's very hard to make sense of a word like Nibbana. It doesn't mean anything to us. Because it doesn't mean anything to us, we put whatever meaning into the word that we like. Yeah. So you know, it, but for an in person who grew up with a word like that, it had a very clear meaning. It would actually have a feeling to it, uh, and that feeling would be something like extinguishment. Uh. So what do you think? Is that extinguishment? Is it good or is it bad? Good. Some people say good. Yeah. Is anyone think it's bad? It wouldn't be too surprising if someone thought it was bad. Extinguish? What do you mean extinguishment? Are we are we come here to get extinguished? <laughs> so remember what the Buddha talks about when he talks about extinguishment. The primary thing that is extinguished is dukkha. Yeah, is the extinguishment of dukkha, and so that is not so bad. Dukkha means suffering, yeah, or pain, or trouble, or or um, uh, unsatisfactoriness, sometimes translated as as well. Uh, so then it's not so bad. It's, the, it's also the extinguishment of defilements. Uh, yeah, the things in the mind that drag the mind around and make the mind not see things clearly. Uh, so really it's the extinguishment of bad stuff. Uh, <laughs> that is really what it is about. And then of course the uh, coming into existence of the opposites as a consequence. Uh, so it's important to kind of understand these things in the right way. And then they really start to make, make sense as a consequence. Uh, Nibbana in the suttas uh, always means that. It means the state of being an arahant. When you are an arahant, then you are extinguished. Uh, that is the meaning in the suttas. And what the arahant, the highest, you know, the person who is the, have uh, reached the highest stage of awakening, uh, when they are extinguished, it must mean uh, suffering and defilements being extinguished. Uh, can't really mean anything apart from that. Uh. So that is those little words there. They're all very meaningful, uh, yeah, and they give you different ideas. And but very beautiful this idea of vision and knowledge. You can see it's all really. The, uh, this is really the emphasis here on awakening. Yeah, that the idea that you know, you understand, you see reality, you see what is going on. Uh, so it's all about wisdom. Uh, it's all about right view. It's all about um, seeing the world as it actually is. Uh, and uh, to me, the idea of wisdom has always been extraordinarily attractive. Uh, who doesn't want to be wise? Uh, yeah, w I mean, it, it, wisdom is uh, by f the highest of all the spiritual faculties. Uh, because if you are wise, it means that you can do those things that lead to happiness and not do those things that lead to suffering. If you are deluded, you tend to move towards suffering even though you actually want happiness. Uh, so wisdom is this ability to see things as they actually are. yeah. And, and of course, then you can help others, you can help yourself, and then you can be a real blessing for the world as a consequence. Uh, so uh, all of that is about wisdom. Uh, 
So if you are attracted to wisdom like I am, then it makes sense. Uh, if you are not attracted to wisdom, then <laughs> I assume all of you are attracted to wisdom. So that's why you probably are here. Yeah, why wouldn't you be? It seems crazy not to be attracted to wisdom. Uh, so, um, okay. And then, what is that middle way? Yeah. Uh, uh, now, this is the noble. No, sorry. And what is that middle way? It is simply this noble eightfold path. Uh, that is right view, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right immersion. This is that middle way, which gives rise to knowledge, leads to peace, direct knowledge, awakening, and extinguishment. Uh, so that is the noble eightfold path. Uh, I'm going to talk about this in quite a bit more detail later on, but let me just uh, kind of summarize it for you now, what this really is about, because uh, it is a very, um, it's, it's a very interesting path, and there is a logic to it. Uh, many of you will know this logic already, but just again, just to re-emphasize what that logic is about. Uh, so it starts off by understanding the world in the right way, yeah, having right view. Uh, and remember that right view comes in the, large number of degrees yeah infinite number of degrees really and the idea is to have as much right view as possible uh, and it starts off with simple things like you know no knowing understanding that being kind is preferable to being nasty to you know to, to understand that peace is preferable to restlessness and agitation and all of these kind of things uh, simple things whereby you understand the uh, you know basic aspects of happiness and suffering in life uh, and uh, we're going to have a much more look at this later on with death and old age and illness and, and all of these kind of things. Uh, so it starts off with having a grasp of our existence. Uh, and then, as I mentioned yesterday or this morning, it was probably, uh, then as you have that right view, uh, then the right aim and the right goal starts to happen. You start to aim in the right direction. Uh, Adan Sudato here translated as right thought, uh, which is... Uh, Okay, uh, it's not my preferred translation, but I guess it's fine because right thought, of course, when you think, then it's often to do with intention and goals and aims. Uh, but I prefer the idea that sankapa is actually used in the suttas to mean planning. In other words, uh, your goals and your purposes. Yeah, so that's my preferred translation. Right aim or right purpose, if you like. Yeah. And then when you have the right purpose, uh, that right purpose is the starts off with living a moral life uh, and when i say moral i don't mean just moral in the ordinary sense of not doing bad things uh, but i mean thoroughly moral in the buddhist sense of basically kindness yeah avoiding the bad doing the good uh, not thinking bad things but thinking good things it's a very 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 broad category this buddhist idea of sila and when you get the, when you understand how broad it is uh, you understand that a lot, large part of the path, yeah, depending on kind of where you are at on this path, a very large part of this uh, is actually about getting that sila aspect right at the very beginning here. Yeah. So because you're aiming right, then you have right speech, yeah, you have right action, you have right livelihood. This is all about that sila and the idea of living a life of kindness uh, and living a life of, uh, uh, you know, harmlessness and these kind of things. Yeah. So that is the initial point of sila. And then when you have uh, kind of purified yourself with the most basic things, remember it's a gradual 
path. Yeah, you have to start with the coarser uh, problems, and then gradually move on to the more refined ones. Uh, so it's always about looking at yourself. Okay, what do I have to do? What is the big problems I have in my life? And you start with those, and then you move on to the more refined ones. Uh, if you get that wrong, uh, if you start try to start with the more refined ones, it's not going to work. And this is often a problem in Buddhism. Yeah, often we do start in the wrong way. People, you come in on the retreat, you sit down, bang, sit down, watch your breath. Yeah, they don't even ask you whether you keep in the five precepts yet. They don't really ask you if you are a mafia member or not. If you're a mafia member, first of all, you have to move out of the mafia club. And then you have to purify your precepts, stop killing so many people. And then it's not stealing quite as much. Yeah, at least steal a little bit less. Yeah, first of all. <laughs> It's a gradual path. Don't stop stealing straight away because it's too difficult if you're a mafia member, but gradually reduce your stealing. <laughs> so this is what so it's gradual, yeah. My point is just that we have to know what our main problems are and then gradually move away. If you get things in the wrong way, if you start to sit down and watch the breath straight away, you're gonna fail. And this is why sometimes on these meditation systems that people practice a large percentage of people actually fall away because they haven't really been taught properly, to be honest with you. They haven't really kind of understood what the path is about uh, and have a very fixed kind of idea. This is the way it works. Uh, ding, 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 follow this pattern. Uh, but actually, we're not all the same. Uh, we all come into this world with different uh, proclivities and different mental inclinations. So we need to really look after our own practice. Uh, each one of us is going to be slightly different. Uh, some are quite a bit different, yeah? So you need to ask yourself, where is where are you at? Uh, what is your kind of problems that you need to deal with? Uh, so don't think that it's just a matter of sitting down and crossing your legs and watching the breath and everybody doing the same thing. It isn't really like that. Uh, you have to take charge of your own spiritual practice, really. That is the fast way. Uh, so be wise about things. Uh, be wise about yourself and your own practice. And then gradually, if you get things in the right way, then uh, you will be making headway. There is a beautiful sutta, which is called the um, uh, Earth Washing Sutta, something like that. It's in the, found in the Anguttara 3s, which is about how gold is refined. Uh, and the Buddha talks about refining gold. It's like refining the mind. Uh, yeah? And if you refine gold, uh, what you have to do is you have to do it gradually. You have to start off by kind of taking out the coarser defilements. Yeah. Uh, for example, if you have find gold in a, like a riverbed, like nuggets of gold, uh, I know they didn't have a gold rush here in Victoria, huh? back in the 1850s. Something. Yeah, that's probably they went to the rivers and probably washed, tried and wash out gold and things out of the rivers. So you first of all, take out the coarser aspects, maybe the gravel or whatever is in there. Huh? Then you go to the medium ones, you wash out the sand. Yeah, you filter. I don't know how they, how they do it, but some kind of filtering system. And then you wash out the kind of the dust yeah, towards the very end. You do things in a certain sequence. Uh, Otherwise, it doesn't work. You can't take the dust out first and then the gravel. It's com somehow that doesn't work. Yeah. Doesn't, I, I don't know that. Anyway, that's kind of the, <laughs> that's the simile anyway. I don't know. I have, I'm no expert in washing gold. I, maybe I, maybe I, w I wasn't a gold uh, kind of uh, digger in my past life or whatever it is. But uh, So this is how it works. And then once you have the gold nuggets, then you put them in a crucible and you heat it and you burn out the final kind of defilements of that gold. Uh, yeah, it's a gradual thing. Yeah. And so and it works according to that process. And then you get beautiful shining gold afterwards. So if you want a beautiful shining mind, this is kind of the parallel here, you have to reduce the defilements in a gradual way in, in uh, according to that simile. Yeah. 
So the next one, after you have reduced the kind of the coarser aspect of your conduct, is to move on to the mind, yeah, the mental aspects of our conduct. Uh, and that is right effort, uh, where that is all about. Uh, and uh, so right effort is really about learning how to think in the right way, thinking in a way that is productive of less ill will and less desires and less delusion, uh, and moving towards the opposites. Uh, that is really what right effort is all about. Uh, yeah, and then with that right effort, when you have a reasonably stable mind and you are, you actually are able to bring up a proper a bit of mindfulness, yeah, the stronger the mindfulness, the better. In other words, you're able to sit down, maybe your mind is gets peaceful by itself. You don't have to, um, you know, you're not thinking constantly. Some people think constantly. Huh? But you're able to make the mind reasonably peaceful. That is when mindfulness is possible, then you can meditate. You can see, otherwise meditation is almost impossible because you have to force yourself onto the meditation object. Uh, that is what Samasati is about, uh, right mindfulness here. Uh, yeah, That's when you sit down, you watch the breath. Uh, finally, step number seven on the Noble Eightfold Path. Not step number one, uh, Yeah, step number seven is right mindfulness. Uh, that is uh, mindfulness of breathing here. Uh, so if you find it hard to do mindfulness of breathing, you shouldn't really be surprised. Yeah, it's step number seven on this path. You can, so it's very, it's actually quite profound to be able to sit down and watch the breath and be able to go with that. You don't have to feel kind of you are some kind of, you know, bad Buddhist or whatever because you can't watch the breath. And it's, this is it's very common and actually it's quite an advanced stage already to be able to sit down peacefully and just be with the breath. So. Uh, that is why it comes so late on the path, uh, yeah, because all these preliminaries really have to be in place before you get there. Uh, it's obvious in a sense, yeah. If you have too much, if you have ill will or aversion or desire, then your mind is going to be pulled around by these things. It's going to be in the future, it's going to be in the past, going to be everywhere. It's not going to be in the present. Uh, and if it's not in the present, well, then, you know, it's not going to work, yeah, because the breath is in the present. It's right here. It's not in the future or the past. Uh, so, um, that is the problem there. And then the purpose of right mindfulness is then to abandon the very last refinement, very fine defilements of the mind until the mind is brilliant and pure, like refined gold, shining, blazing, yeah, giving rise to the highest kind of happiness that is possible in samsaric existence. And then that will take you to samma, samadhi, right. Right what? Right immersion, it says here. Have, have you heard this translation before? Uh, you have? Okay, well done. Uh, okay, so immersion. Again, this is another sign of uh, uh, Ajahn Sujato. Uh, he is the only one who translates Samma Samadhi as right immersion. Uh, so if you see that translation, then you know Ajahn Sujato, Ajahn Sujato. Uh, so uh, <laughs> is it a good translation? Uh, Well, it's, you know, so I, I sometimes it's interesting because uh, what is a good translation, what is a bad one, it really depends on, uh, depends on many things. Uh, but instead of thinking in terms of good and bad, I tend to think more in terms of, well, does it add anything to our understanding of samadhi? Uh, is it a kind of alternative angle to think about samadhi? And I think it is. And I, I kind of, I must admit, it's not my preferred translation because uh, I feel it's a bit too technical and intellectual perhaps it's not doesn't really grab you emotionally and these things are should really kind of have a feeling to it as well so i would prefer something like ajahn brahm right stillness uh, yeah 
So I, I really, because stillness is something that straight away you can relate to. Immersion is a bit more difficult to relate to. Her. So you, in my opinion, you have to kind of think about it a bit and see what it means. What does it mean? Well, immersion is the idea of being immersed. You are within something here. You are like shut off. Yeah, it's like a, you immerse a cup or a something in water, and it's kind of completely surrounded by water. Here. In the same way, when you are in a state of samadhi, it's like you are immersed in this state, uh, and it doesn't extend beyond that state. Uh, and this says something about samadhi, and that's kind of the point of the translation. Also, it is uh, etymologically related to kind of the root meaning of words like samadhi as well. Uh, uh, but um, you are immersed, yeah? you are within yourself, you are within the kind of the, the safe home within yourself when you withdraw from the world outside, which is so problematic. Uh, and uh, that is kind of the idea behind that. Uh, so in that c sense, it actually is quite, uh, uh, you know, quite useful as an alternative view, alternative way of looking at this. Uh, I did tell Adan Sudato that he should not use immersion. I said, use, use stillness. He said, no, I'm going to use immersion. Okay. <laughs> what can you do? You can always say so much. <laughs> I know when to shut up, so I shut up. So, <laughs> so that is... Uh, Anyways, that is where the path, interestingly, the path comes to an end. Yeah? So with the right immersion, right samma samadhi, it comes to an end. Why? Well, because at that point, insight just happens. Uh, yeah? If you have right view, which is here assumed because it is the first factor, combined with that right immersion, uh, then uh, insights just bang happen. Uh, and then whether you want to become a stream enter, whether you want to become an arahant or not, uh, you're going to become one. It just happens as a consequence of these things. Uh. So uh, that also says something about Samma Samadhi, how profound it is. Uh. Yeah, it is very, extremely profound. Uh. It's very useful to remember that because uh, there is a lot of Samadhi light around the world. Uh, yeah, but this is not, Buddhist Samadhi is not Samadhi light, it's Samadhi profound. Uh. And uh, so it's uh, important to Keep that in mind. At this point, you are pretty much, you are at the end of the path. Uh, and then awakening happens as a consequence. So these things are really extraordinarily profound. Uh. And that path is uh, uh, ending up with Samma Samadhi. Yeah? These are some of the highest happinesses you can have in samsaric existence. Uh. So it is a very, very happy path, an extraordinarily happy path. In fact, the path itself is, uh, the result is happy. The path is happy, yeah? And this is what we, sometimes we talk about the Buddha being Addi Kalyana, Majjima Kalyana, and uh, uh, Pariyosana Kalyana. It means like good in the beginning, in the middle, and the end. And that goodness is, of course, in Buddhism, goodness is tantamount to happiness. Something is good because it's happy, yeah? So this is an, a, a path, yeah, even the path, let alone the result, uh, has just uh, enormous amounts of happiness to it. Uh, Samma Samadhi, once you start to become peaceful, you're watching the breath already, uh, and already is really, really happy. In fact, just keeping your precepts makes you quite happy if you do it in the right way. Yeah. Uh, and then as you do that along the way, you kind of reach for things that are just beyond your wildest kind of dreams in terms of happiness. Uh, and this is what this path is promising us. It's just a matter of implementing it in the right way, and then it will happen as a consequence. Uh, so middle way, it sounds kind of boring, yeah? Middle way, middle, I don't want to, I, I want to kind of an extreme way. I want kind of extreme happiness, yeah? Much, much better here. But uh, middle way actually means extreme in one sense. It actually means extreme happiness. Uh, Nibbanang padamang sukang, says the Buddha in one of the Dhammapada verses. Nibbana is the highest happiness. Uh, 
it is an extreme the result is extreme and the path itself is also quite extreme in that in that particular way here so that is the middle way for you middle way is happy way now let us come to uh, uh, the first noble truth uh, so um, so after having kind of set up the um, uh, set set up the idea of the middle way uh, because you have to the buddha has to lead his disciples away from the um if you like the mistaken views of the time yeah of, of the kind of prevailing culture at that time which is the brahmanical culture so he has to lead his disciples away from that and then he is able to teach them the teaching that is uh, the buddha's special teaching the four noble truths uh, yeah now he's kind of ready first of all you have to kind of wipe away some of the dust from people's eyes and then uh, you're ready to kind of go for the real teachings uh. in some of the um, uh, parallel suttas to the Dhammachakka Sutta. Uh, this, you know, as I often like to mention, that these suttas exist in a variety of languages uh, because they have been translated into Chinese, uh, into Tibetan, into Sanskrit, uh, and into a large number of other very um, obscure languages you would never have heard of before. Uh, uh, th because of that, you can do comparative studies of these teachings uh, and you can look at the various versions and how they have been handed down. Uh, and some of these versions, the Dhammachakka Sutta is divided into two parts. First of all, the Buddha teaches the middle way, and then he kind of allows his disciples to digest that information for a few days, and then he teaches the uh, the four noble truths. Yeah. Whereas in the Pali, it is all kind of whacked together into one. So when we read these things, you have to remember that the uh, uh, it it, it is, may not be quite as straightforward as it looks. Yeah. It may be that. Uh, you know, people are always saying, wow, at the time of the Buddha, people were so enlightened. Yeah, they just had to listen to one teaching and bang, they become enlightened straight away. How come it takes, takes us so long here? Is it because we are really, we're living in kind of the Kala Yuga, the kind of dark times? Or what, what is the reason? Here? And the reason is because actually it took them much longer at the time of the Buddha as well. But things are often condensed, yeah, like you see here. here. And that is the reason. And of course, there are some people with very powerful faculties. There are some people who, you know, get samadhi quite easily. Uh, and those people will be ready very quickly if they uh, uh, just get the right teachings. Uh, so now then we come to this uh, first noble truth. Uh, yeah. And so what is it? So are you excited? First noble truth? Uh, okay, you, you probably know this noble truth really well already. So you're probably not that excited. Uh, but... Uh, Remember that when uh, when these four di five disciples heard this, they, they actually one of them became enlightened, became a stream entry. Yeah, so it's kind of astonishing here. Yeah. So we'll see what happens to you when we read this out. Uh. <laughs> okay. So now this is the noble truth of suffering. Yeah. Rebirth is suffering. Old age is suffering. Illness is suffering. Death is suffering. Association with the disliked is suffering. Separation from the liked is suffering. Not getting what you want is suffering. In brief, the five grasping aggregates, the five grasping factors, personality factors, uh, or something like that are suffering here. That is the first noble truth. And uh, a lot of that is kind of very seems very it's kind of easy to understand yeah you can you, most of that kind of makes 
sense straight away because we all experience that all a lot of it uh, so you know exactly what it means uh, and uh, it's really only the last one there which is really a bit cryptic in brief the five grasping aggregates are suffering that is the most cryptic one and we'll get back to that one later uh, but uh, before we do that uh, I'm going to discuss the other ones in quite a bit of detail. Why? Because even though they are obvious in one sense, uh, it is important to reflect on these things in a way that actually makes them more powerful for us. Uh, allow these things to sink in to a deeper level than what we're used to. Uh, only then do they really start to have a, an effect in our lives. Uh. So the first one here is rebirth is suffering. Uh, and uh, the Pali word for rebirth is jati. Uh, and jati normally translated as birth yeah i don't know if you have seen ever seen it translated as rebirth before i don't know if you uh, have but uh, so which one is correct birth or rebirth and uh, the answer to that question is and this is kind of why uh, translation is such an interesting exercise because uh, when you translate you have to try to translate from that particular cultural point of view so now you are in ancient india rebirth is taken for granted yeah not everyone believed in rebirth but it was the mainstream view of, of life at that particular time uh, so for that reason when they talk about birth in ancient india it always implies rebirth yeah rebirth is actually implied but when we talk about when we use the word birth in english it doesn't mean rebirth at all yeah you would have no idea that it has anything to do with rebirth so in a sense, by saying rebirth, you are saying you're adding information that makes it easier for a West, for a, a, an audience that has grown up in a non-Indian culture uh, to understand what is going on. Uh, otherwise, you might get uh, 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 deluded about what actually is happening here. Uh. So in one sense, I think actually it's quite nice to translate it as rebirth, yeah, because it adds information. This is how most people at that time actually would understand it. Uh, so I think, yeah, I think, uh, and Sudhartha has done a nice job there of rendering that as rebirth. Uh, I can't just criticize and has to praise him a little bit as well. So I think <laughs> in this case, it's quite, it's actually quite nice because it adds that information. And what is um, interesting as well is that when you start to reflect on what jati actually must mean in the context of the first noble truth actually it must mean rebirth anyway uh, and why is that and the reason is because uh, uh, remember what we are trying to overcome we're trying to overcome suffering uh, the way to overcome suffering according to the second noble truth is to give up craving uh, and the only suffering you can give up is future suffering uh, yeah, you cannot give up the suffering that's already happened to you, which is, you know, you were born in this life. So if, if jati is suffering and you want to give it up, it must refer to future jati. It cannot refer to the jati in this life because you cannot give up what has already happened. So it actually, logically speaking, it must refer to rebirth. Yeah? And uh, for that reason, it's even more useful, I think, to, um, to think of it in that particular way. In fact... Uh, if you think about the Four Noble Truths, uh, and this may not be so obvious, uh, all four of the Four Noble Truths actually refer to rebirth one way or the other. Uh, the Second Noble Truth specifically mentions rebirth. Uh, yeah? It says, um, uh, porno, porno bhavika, means, which literally means again existence. Uh, yeah? So it has the craving that has to do with again, again existence. In other words, rebirth. Third Noble Truth refers back to that uh, 
Second Noble Truth, that also refers to that very craving. In other words, the craving that has to do with rebirth. Fourth Noble Truth is the path, yeah, which starts off with the right view, and right view, as we have just seen now, is about rebirth. And First Noble Truth is about rebirth. So all four Noble Truths are about, include the idea of rebirth. Yeah, that may not be obvious, and uh, that is very interesting, because uh, one of the things that you notice, if you know the suttas really well, if you have read the suttas, you know, in Pali and English and Norwegian, and you've read them the right way up and upside down and back to front and front to back and these kind of things, and you have really kind of studied them in quite a bit of detail, uh, then you start to realize that rebirth is everywhere in the suttas. Uh, if you try to take out rebirth out of the suttas, uh, you're taking out one of the pillars that make the suttas comprehensible. Uh, if you take out rebirth, you have to reinterpret the suttas entirely from scratch, uh, and you have to reimagine what the Dhamma is about. Uh, and it's no longer the teaching of the Buddha. It becomes your own teaching, yeah, if you reinterpret everything. Yeah. So what would you like? Would you like a kind of, uh, um, you know, the interpretation of some scallywag Buddhist, or would you prefer to have the interpretation of the Buddha? That's kind of your, <laughs> that is kind of your, your, your choice sometimes. Yeah. So, uh, um, it's important that we kind of, this is why I always like to come back to the word of the Buddha, because when you come back to the word of the Buddha, you see what he says, then you have the basic information in place about what these teachings are about. Yeah? Rebirth is absolutely fundamental to Buddhism, and if you take it out, you are really, um, you don't have the message of the Buddha anymore, you have something else. Yeah? It is, has some relationship perhaps to the, to the message of the Buddha, but it's no longer that message. Yeah? So this is the first thing, yeah? It is about rebirth. So what is it about birth or rebirth that is problematic? Why is it dukkha? And uh, you, you can see, understand this, I think, in a number of ways. It's kind of, you know, first of all, being born probably isn't all that nice. Yeah, it's probably kind of unpleasant to get born. It probably, in, in an immediate sense, probably isn't very nice. You come from a nice, kind of comfortable place, just hanging out in your mother's tummy, and then suddenly one day you come into the world. Yeah, it's cold out there and kind of all kind of, you know, it's not very, you know, suddenly much less safe and all these kind of things. It probably is a bit traumatic to get born. Uh, that's probably the first way. That is kind of a very shallow way of thinking about rebirth being dukkha. Uh, uh, but also it is uh, probably dukkha for, uh, for other reasons as well. Another reason why I think it is dukkha, and that is that uh, you have to you kind of, one of the things you, know, you, you read about when you read about things like out-of-body experiences and near-death experience, experiences uh, is how nice it is to get rid of the body. Yeah, have you heard about that? You kind of you go out your body and think, wow, finally rid of the body. And we don't normally feel that. Normally we think that this body is kind of fine. You only really realize that until you actually get out of it. Uh, of course, you also realize it in meditation. Yeah, If you go into a deep state of meditation and the body disappears, uh, it feels very light and liberating. That is one of the reasons why the deep meditations are liberations of the mind, because the body and the senses are left behind. Uh, and uh, so... You know, you, you get rid of the body and you feel really good. And this is why death is quite nice sometimes, yeah? You get rid of the body. Yay, body's gone. Yeah? Dying. Hooray, finally I can die. Get rid of this body. It's wonderful, isn't it? Because you turn things upside down. And this is uh, one of the beautiful things about, you know, having a teacher like Ajahn Brahm, because I have learned so much from Ajahn Brahm. 
So everything I say is pretty much just a regurgitation of Ajahn Brahma. Not everything. I occasionally I say something uh, slightly different, but uh, <laughs> but Ajahn Brahma always kind of he, he he does things differently, and this is kind of this is what what you expect from someone who has quite a bit of a lot of wisdom. Uh, and uh, you know, you go with Ajahn Brahm to hospital, and I remember uh, many, many years ago, I went to hospital with him, and it was this a young woman lying in the bed, and she was dying of cancer. She was only in her twenties. Uh, yeah, normally in society it would be considered really tragic when someone in her twenties is dying of cancer, uh, but Ajahn Brahm went in there and said, "Yay, <laughs> finally, yeah, get rid of your body. Yeah, this body is no good anymore. It's just suffering and pain for you now. You can look forward to kind of leaving it all behind and moving on into the kind of a bright happiness of leaving all the suffering behind." And her parents were kind of sitting there on the edge of the bed, yeah. <laughs> and it, it was kind of, I thought, ooh, gee, okay, are you, are you sure this is the right thing to say? I, I was, but the thing is that when you have a certain authority and a certain power about you, you can say things that ordinary people can't say, yeah. And Ajahn Brahm, he could say that, and everyone was kind of happy afterwards. That was the amazing thing, yeah. Even the parents were happy afterwards. And this is the power of having, you know, Develop yourself spiritually to that extent. You can get away. It's not really getting away. You can make statements about the world which other people can never make. Yeah? And so this is really dying. If it's done in the right way, it is not a bad experience. It is a good experience. Of course, you have to live well, first of all. Yeah. This young woman happened to have lived well. She had become doing meditation and living well for a long time, so it wasn't really an issue. If you live well, dying usually is a pleasant experience. Yeah? You're leaving behind all the burdens of life uh, and heading in the right direction. I'm not recommending suicide, by the way. <laughs> don't get me wrong. I, I don't, I'm not saying not now. You have to wait till the time is right. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, I get into serious trouble if that happens. So, but you can imagine, yeah, if if dying or getting out of your body is so happy, and then you are told now you have to go back into a body again. Yeah, that's what rebirth is. Now you have to kind of go back in. Not only a body, but this tiny little thing yeah, in your mother's tummy, this tiny little fetus. Uh, yeah, and there's no kind of way to communicate. You're just stuck in this little thing yeah, for a long time. Uh, it's not a very, it's probably quite uh, an unpleasant experience, this idea that you have to go back in. You don't really want to get reborn again. Uh, yeah? It is not really something nice. You don't want to come back to a body one more time. Uh, yeah, you know that story, a famous story from uh, that I always like to tell Ajahn Brahm. I, I, everything I get is from Ajahn Brahm. Ajahn Brahm told me this story. Uh, I'm not sure if they're always true, these stories. Anyway, this is a <laughs> this was in an American newspaper, uh, and there was this baby had just get just got was just born, yeah, just 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 born, uh, and as soon as soon afterwards it opens him out as oh no, not again, uh, yeah. And that is kind of a nice story because it shows you that the proce this process of rebirth is, uh, you know, is, uh, it is traumatic. Yeah. But there is an even more profound way in which rebirth is a problem. Uh, and that is because uh, rebirth is just the continuation of the same cycle. Yeah? It is not the knowledge that now you have to go through things again, exactly the same thing again. Uh, yeah? Rebirth and this is why I think it is at the beginning here of the first noble truth, because rebirth is the beginning of this whole cycle of old age, of illness, of, uh, of dying and not getting what you want, and all the problems. Birth is always the beginning of dukkha. Yeah? So this, in this way, it is very problematic. And uh, there is a, 
a sutta, in fact, where uh, Venerable Sariputta is asked the difference between happiness and suffering. What is dukkha and what is sukha? And he says that rebirth is dukkha. Not to get reborn is sukkha. That is happiness. Yeah, and this shows you how profound the idea of rebirth actually is. That itself is really the issue. That is the problem we're trying to overcome in Buddhism. Once you are reborn, you are stuffed. Yeah, that's you are. You're gonna. It's gonna have to go through all of these things again. And uh, that is the uh, the problem. The problem with this. So. Uh, uh, that yeah so all of these things like old age here yeah it is because in this life okay you are stuck already but of course if you can get reborn it can it ca uh, potentially it carries on indefinitely in the future uh, again and again and again just going around in this kind of uh, pointless fashion uh. and uh, i have sometimes wondered whether you know at the moment you get reborn whether perhaps you have a vision of what is going on yeah, because you can imagine yourself, you are like in the intermediate state, uh, the antarabhava. The antarabhava is usually rejected by the orthodox Theravadins. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not an orthodox Theravadin. Uh. Is that bad? <laughs> I'm not sure. I, I, I apologize if you think that's bad, but I'm not really an orthodox Theravadin. I, I consider myself more like someone who's interested in the teachings of the Buddha, not in some kind of a particular lineage. Yeah, I, I'm not so interested in being so much part of a particular lineage uh, because orthodox Theravadan means a lot of cultural what I would call historical and cultural baggage uh, yeah things like the Abhidhamma and all these kind of things that were added to the word of the Buddha throughout Theravadan histories I consider myself I think it's nice to be a, a Buddha disciple of the Buddha that's what I consider myself at least as far as that's possible yeah. so uh, and in uh, the Suttas, it seems fairly clear that there is such a thing as an antara bhava. Antara means between, bhava means existence. Yeah, so in between existence is the antara bhava between lives. So you, uh, before you get reborn, after you died, yeah, and there's some good evidence for that in the suttas that this actually exists. Then uh, uh, again, you kind of get into that realm, and you feel really happy. Just get rid of your body, and then it comes a point when you realize I'm going to have to get reborn again. Yeah, and that I think is when you still have the memory of having been released from your previous life, uh, and then you suddenly realize I'm going to have to be reborn. Uh, and I think if you are have a bit of mindfulness at that particular point, uh, you understand that this is really samsara. Yeah, this you see only one instance of what is a much larger uh, reality of getting reborn again and again and going round and round, potentially indefinitely in the future. Uh, and I think that is kind of one of the really kind of um, concerning things at that particular point, especially maybe if you haven't got a spiritual practice or whatever, it can be really kind of, it can be quite scary to see that larger, broader picture of samsara, how it sort of starts to uh, manifest and how it kind of, it may be, uh, you, you actually see, po po possibly uh, understand the teachings of the Buddha very profoundly at that particular point. Uh, you say, oh no, not again. You really think that at that particular point, yeah? So that is, uh, that is, I think, the uh, can be one of the big problems there. Yeah. So really, now you start to see why rebirth is problematic, yeah? It is the beginning of the whole problem, beginning of this whole process. And of course, this is also why this feeling or idea of confidence in the idea of rebirth actually matters so much, because in Buddhism, this is precisely the problem. Uh, 
this is what we're trying to overcome huh? ultimately yeah of course there's much more to buddhism than that there's also the idea of just uh, finding more happiness and contentment in our lives and all of these things all of these things matter but it's good to have that little bit of that overview as well huh? so uh, that is why i'm reading reading these things out uh, so uh rebirth or birth is uh, suffering here yeah. that is uh, that very first part there of the first noble truth uh. um okay so i think i will uh, stop there because uh, otherwise i'm kind of going into uh, the other aspects here and we only have a cup a few minutes left uh, so i think i better to stop at this particular uh, point um one of the things that I didn't mention is when does actually rebirth happen? At what particular point? Uh, what does rebirth really mean in the suttas? And uh, does it mean the moment you actually get born? Or does it mean something more like conception? Or not, not even conception, but the moment that consciousness actually moves on to the next life. Uh, and uh, it seems that in the suttas, birth is not the ideal way. Because birth in... In, in, a, in kind of in English, just means the moment you kind of come into the world, you emerge from your mother's tummy and you come into the world. That's really birth uh, in English. Uh, but what it means in the suttas really is the moment your consciousness moves from one existence, from the antrabhava, into the next one. Yeah, the moment you kind of uh, uh, kind of find yourself in that fetus, or if it is some other existence, the moment your consciousness appears in that realm. Yeah, maybe as a ghost. Yeah, or a deva maybe, yeah, whatever it is, uh, that is really the moment of rebirth in Buddhism, uh, when you reappear in that particular way. Uh, and uh, that matters a little bit, uh, because uh, um, uh, otherwise there's something missing in the whole process. The whole process doesn't really add up properly if we don't have that. Uh. Okay, so uh, that is uh, all for now. So please continue enjoying yourself and uh, there will be some interviews at four o'clock is that right Lydia over there okay four o'clock where are they going to happen huh? over that building over there okay good so over over there we'll see you over there and see what happens uh, okay so that's it for now